0: The next uh, individual that shows up is Antonio Gramsci. He was kind of known as the godfather of cultural Marxism. Antonio Gramsci uh, was, he lived in Italy, and uh, he was there, he was put in prison by Benito Mussolini, another Italian fascist. In fact, the prosecutor in his trial said, we must stop this brain from working for 20 years. So Gramsci was sent to prison. He was very, very ill not very healthy. He wrote in prison uh, what were eventually known as his prison notebooks, 33 volumes, 300 pages. And in them, the biggest thing we need to understand about Gramsci is this little word, hegemony. This word's gonna come up next week when we look at critical race, critical studies. Hegemony, what is it? Comes from a Greek word, hegemonia. And the word means dominance over. And what Gramsci was saying was the problem, he diagnosed the problem not with the economy and with the way money was flowing, but with the institutions of a civil society that have been culturally constructed. This is very important. Family, where did it come from? Why did, why did men choose rather to fight for their families than to fight against the industrial capitalists. Gramsci said it was because family was a cultural construct to hold power over people. And there were many other cultural constructs like church, unions, schools, etc., So the word hegemony is used to describe a system of power in which societies or cultures hold power over the weak in society to control them. So in contrast to Marx, who believed that economics drives culture, Gramsci realized or believed that culture was the driving force behind economics. By the way, economics isn't just about money. Just so we're clear, economics is about choices and values. What we value, what we choose. It's it's about our time as well as our money. And about our skills. So Gramsci realized or believed that culture was the driving force behind economics. And so his famous saying was, he was looking for the long march through the institutions of power. And his whole entire goal was for the Western culture, which is a Christianized culture, right? It was set up by and and undergirded by Christian principles and a Christian worldview. It must be de-Christianized for a Marxist utopia to be achieved. So this long march through institutions of power, stage one would be influences through schools, churches, and media. We're seeing that today. It's clear all around us and we're scratching our heads going, what's going on? Why are people believing these things? Why is it I can see with my eyes reality and someone comes along and says, no, no, up isn't down or up is down and down is up. And I'm supposed to believe it or else. And people are jumping on board and ignoring reality, ignoring biology and things like that. What is going on? It's a long march through the institutions of power. Stage two of this long march would be to gain political control through police, legal courts, civil service, municipal councils, etc. They were going to use democracy against us. We see that. It's so blatant now. Have you noticed how far the left is just moving to the left? The mask is off. And we're wondering, how did this happen so quickly? But it's been happening for a long time. In fact, it goes right back to Gramsci. Uh, Next, we have the Frankfurt School. So Georg Lukacs was was around at the same time as Gramsci. He was in Hungary, and at one point in 1919, I believe it was, there was a, a communist regime that very quickly uh, came to power in Hungary. Wasn't there very long, but, uh, but Georg was part of that uh, regime. And one of the things that he introduced uh, was a radical sex education program to the Hungarian schools to destroy the Judeo-Christian notions of sexual ethics to weaken the bourgeois family. Okay, so our sexual ethics in their worldview are culturally constructed so we're a mess today and everything is chaos sexually in our world we're going to talk about that in a number of nights um but we're going back to 1919 this was not the sexual revolution of the 1960s this was 1919 that this guy had introduced this it didn't last long There was a big upheaval. I think the Romanians actually drove the Communists out of power in Hungary. Uh, But this guy and his buddies, Max Horkheimer, I think I have a list of them here. Oh, I did have a list there. Yeah, Max Horkheimer, uh, Adorno, Theodore Adorno, Erich Fromm, and Herbert Marcuse. Some of these names we're gonna notice in a number of nights as well. Uh, These guys set up a school in Frankfurt, Germany at first, they wanted to call it the Institute for Marxism, and then they thought, no, that's a little too overt. And for PR purposes, they decided to hide their intentions somewhat behind the name the Institute for Social Research. These are all trigger words, folks. If you hear these words, they mean something. Social. Social reconstruction. Social revolution. Uh, during World War II this is key, Horkheimer, Adorno, and Marcuse were driven out of Germany, I believe they were Jewish, at least some of them were, by uh, Hitler, and they were driven out of Germany with a hatred of fascism uh, because of the Nazi oppression. again, this goes back to, again, we see this today, fascist bad, communist good, fascist bad, communist good. You see this a lot today. Like I, I used to ask guys at work, I had a lot of young guys that worked for me, and I used to ask them, like, why is it guys your age are talking about Marxism like it's a good thing, right? It was just, a, it was amazing to me to hear. I just never heard this before. I always thought of Marx as, as something that was evil, you know, and it seemed to be that way when I was in school, and it uh, doesn't seem to be that way now. Uh, Horkheimer, of course, uh, developed critical theory studies of many kinds. And they're just studies. They never actually solve anything. And by critical, uh, they don't mean they're going to critique it and try and make it better. Critical is in the most negative sense of that word. Right? All they're doing is criticizing for the reason they want to deconstruct society. Where do you think the term, the, the idea defund the police came from? They don't want to they don't want to reform the police. No, they want to deconstruct law and order. They want to take it right out. Of course, it hasn't worked. It kind of blew up in their face, as it will. But they're going to try anyways. So he started these critical studies courses. They're all through our schools, all through our universities. They're everywhere. And what do they do? They just look at society, just like a grade 12 English class. And they say things like, you know what? You folks have never read any really good literature because all the literature you've ever read were written by, by oppressive, cisgender, white males. Where'd that kind of language come from? Critical studies. We decided that those are the people who are in power, and so therefore we must write them off. In fact, one of the other guys on this list, Adorno, Adorno actually uh, wrote a book uh, called The Authoritarian Personality. And he created in it an F scale. F means fascism. To detect whether or not you are a fascist. So, questions like Are you a male? You know, and, and so on down the list. And do you believe this about sexual ethics and so on? Well, if you do, you are a fascist. So it's one thing to call Hitler a fascist and Himmler and all those guys. But now if you believe Christian teachings and Christian doctrines, you are a fascist. That's why it's very difficult to reason with people like this because they will immediately tell you you're bigoted, you're phobic and so on, right? You are a fascist. That was the kind of language that they had. Adorno and Marcuse integrated Marxist ideologies with Darwinian sociology, so again origins, and Freudian psychology, so meaning and morality. They were just meshing it all together. Uh, Marcuse himself, I think I've got a picture of him up here. I think he's next here. There he is. All right, so this is them coming to... Power. This is Herbert Marcuse. He's going to be very, very uh, crucial, critical to the nights coming up. Uh, he wrote a book called *Eros and Civilization*, and in it, he popularized uh, Marxism in America, but mainly when it came to sexual ethics. In fact, that book became kind of the playbook for the sexual revolution, and started the sexual revolution in the '60s. These guys moved to New York, Columbia University, and out to Hollywood. And that's why Hollywood has long been culturally Marxist. And you can see it, if, if you're aware of it, you begin to see it in movies. You begin to see, guess what? They are preaching messages to you in these movies. That's why when, maybe I am a nerd, but when I watch movies with my kids, I make sure that they understand the message that are coming out of them. It's not pure entertainment. Hollywood's not just trying to entertain you. They're trying to indoctrinate you. They're trying to disciple you. We'll be looking at discipleship one of these nights as well and how the world tends to do a better job than the church as a general rule. Marcuse also wrote another essay called Repressive Tolerance. And uh, Repressive Tolerance, this essay is what has been used as the underpinnings of cancel culture. So we will be looking at this essay Uh, in A Night to Come and uh, cancel culture or being politically correct. Marcuse is actually the guy that was behind this and uh, his reasonings for it are pretty menacing. So it wasn't just about being nice and not offending people. It's menacing what he was up to. And we'll get into that. He was building for revolution. We thought in 1989, I was too young to care back then. But we thought in 1989 when the Berlin Wall came down that communism was over. It was a big celebration. The communists did go into hiding for a little while, but not really. They've been around for a long time. We've just never put a label on it. And so we have the final philosopher I want to point out to you. You may recognize him because what I was just saying about Hollywood and movies is true all the way through our entertainment industry and culture, the culture setters and influencers of our culture today. This is John Lennon, who was one of the disciples of these guys. As the Scottish writer Andrew Fletcher said, let me make the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws. It was guys like John Lennon who set the stage for culture. And I put in your handout John Lennon's song that as soon as you see it, the tune will be in your head. It is so magnetic, right? And you'll be thinking about it probably for the rest of the night. But you know it. You probably sing it. And you probably think it's fun to sing. It is evil, folks. This is a hymn of a secular religion. Imagine there's no countries It isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Mark said that religion was the opiate of the the masses, right? Just makes them go to sleep. I don't know how a gospel that says you're a sinner against a righteous and holy God, if you keep going the way you are and don't change, don't repent, you're going to be destroyed and perish for all of eternity in eternal judgment is opiate. I just don't understand how that makes people go to sleep. I'm pretty sure that's meant to wake people up and get people to change their ways and turn to Christ. But that's what he believed. And no religion too, John Lennon said. Imagine all the people living life in peace. I'd like to imagine it's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. That's a communist Utopia. Imagine all the people sharing all the world after we execute 100 million of them. Oh wait, that didn't work. Our prime minister is one of them, by the way. We know that. We're aware of that. And there are other politicians, obviously, we know that are either of the same mindset or they are being handled by people of the same mindset. One way One way or the other, there just seems to be a gigantic power over the Western world right now. All right, so define uh, the definition of a cultural Marxist worldview. Not to go into this uh, too deep, because in the nights to come, it's just going to keep coming up and coming up. That's why we're laying a foundation tonight. But obviously, in the origin, material, uh, everything is material or culturally constructed. So all the Christian institutions that we have were not given to us by a creator God who instilled them right into the very fabric of your humanity and mine. He didn't instill them into the consciences of men and women. He didn't put them right into the, the, the biology of the world and just the, the fabric of the world around us. No, no, he didn't do that. No, it's all been made up in the brains of some people who wanted to give the masses some opium. That's what Marx, Marxists believe. There's no spiritual reality. There is only physical matter. By the way, there is spiritual reality, and that's why if you don't worship the Creator, you're going to worship something. Many people today are choosing to worship the government. There's no natural construct. There are only cultural constructs, family, gender, gender. Yes, gender is culturally constructed, folks. God didn't somehow weave that into his creation. No, it's culturally constructed. People, your evil parents told you what gender you were. How dare they? That's the worldview. And if we don't go along with it, Mark Hughes says, he's going to shut us down. So you better go along with it. It doesn't, it doesn't align with reality. It doesn't matter. It's my reality. So it better be your reality too. That's what we're facing. That's their worldview. You can see how it's not lining up with all those challenges, those worldview challenges we were talking about earlier. Classes and differences are culturally constructed as well. Secondly, meaning. What is the meaning behind Marxism? I guess it's to live in a world without meaning. Pleasure? Sharing everything? There's no higher purpose beyond the material world. John Lennon says there's the, the, it, he likes to dream about nothing to kill or die for. Okay. Nothing to die for. Hmm. So nothing to live or die for. Seeking a world of perfect justice is the ultimate purpose. Okay. That's great. Assuming people are, that are left are perfect. So they're looking for a utopia. A world where we can share and not steal. Third morality. Well, the morality behind it, again, it aligns with meaning. The morality behind Marxism is whatever it takes to create utopia. So that's why riots in the streets, burnings, Uh, buildings, burning anything in sight, toppling statues, all of that is allowed and very moral and right and good in the eyes of cultural Marxism because it leads to the end. If our meaning, if our purpose in life is to create this community, right? This communal utopia, and the way to get it, Marx and the rest of them said, is through revolution, then no wonder the BLM leaders are saying, we're going to burn it to the ground, which is exactly what they said on live TV. Justice is defined by social and economic equality. Any opposing viewpoint is unjust and therefore must be silenced at all costs. Right? So if you say, I just don't see it that way. Well, it's not your opinion. It's pure evil. So we have to shut you up. That's their morality. Religion, and specifically Christianity that underpins uh, the Western world, is evil and must be eradicated. And then destiny, they're looking for a better, keyword here, physical world without God. I believe Chairman Mao, as he was setting up his communist, or what he was trying to set up under his socialist regime uh, actually said things like he was trying to create a new heaven and a new earth. So they're borrowing from the Christian text, but they want it without God. A world without private property, a world without borders, a world without the notion of God, a world where everyone shares. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, if you've read it, I don't know if you have. Um, But in it he describes a world where everyone is, happiness is the key, right? Happiness is the meaning to life and technology just keeps them happy and they have drugs called Soma that make them sleep if they ever feel upset. And when they were children, as they're growing up in these factories, because after all, mothers naturally having birth to ba- giving birth to babies was evil in the world, brave new world that Aldous Huxley was talking about, he was describing. And uh, one of the lines that these children were hearing over and over again in their sleep, as they're sleeping, these, these phrases were being repeated to them over and over. One of them was, everyone belongs to everyone else. Huxley knew, and he was speaking into the the ideas that Marxism was trying to to spread. And what he was saying is basically there's no family. We're all, the village is your family, right? Your parents have no control over you. They have no responsibility over you. That's a cultural construct. Everyone belongs to everyone else. And there's no monogamous relationships, no. Everyone belongs to everyone else. You can have sex with whoever you want. That's freedom. In the the eyes of this kind of destiny, that's heaven. That's what they're looking for. A world where the community raises the children rather than family units. That's why we're going to have a specific night on the cultural attack on the family. This is real. You want to be a mercenary in this fight, this spiritual warfare? Focus on your family. That's step one. We're going to look at that. What is the outcome? How has this worked out in our culture? Well, we're gonna notice that over the next number of weeks, but critical race theory, I'm just gonna list a few off real quickly here. Critical race theory, cancel culture, the sexual revolution, the ideas of hedonism or pleasure over labor, right? That's why we have a work shortage in the US right now. There's no dignity in work, why would you work? Uh, Environmentalism, intersectionality, which was the power wheel we had up here at the beginning, uh, which has everything to do with intersectionality. We'll be looking at that next week. Destruction of the family, abolition of private property, control of the state, so statism, Marxist economics, abortion, euthanasia, and I'm sure there's more that we could add to the list. But there they are. It's working out. I think no matter where you look, you can see it. I'm pretty sure you can look back at the Wikipedia page and say, nah. No, Pretty sure this is more than a theory. I'm pretty sure it's going on. Okay, where are we going from here? Well, uh, uh, in the worldview, I do want to just illustrate this very quickly what, what, what's going on in, in the Marxist worldview. So we're going to remove God, right? We're also going to remove revelation because there's no one to reveal anything to us anymore. What are we going to put in its place? We're going to put reason. It's our reason that tells us that these things are true. And if your reason doesn't tell you those things, we're going to put a gun to your head and then we'll see what your reason tells you. It always leads there. These are ideas so good that we have to force them on you. (laughs) The Berlin Wall. Do you know why they raised the Berlin Wall? Well, they said, the East Germans said, well, we're, we're raising the wall so the fascists don't get in and poison our beautiful environment with their fascism. (laughs) Guess which direction people were trying to go over that Berlin Wall. It wasn't the fascists trying to get into the communists. It was the other way around. I think there were some 5,000 people that did end up getting out before the wall came down. But I find that very interesting (laughs) that it always seems to be the, the, the other way around or the way they talk about it. And that's why Marxism actually sells. Because it sounds good. When you use words like justice, we all want justice. The problem is the type of justice they're selling is not gonna lead to justice. When we see it already, you kind of scratch your head, you watch the TV screen and go, I'm not quite sure how all these fires in all these cities is just. I'm not sure how that's creating any justice here, right? It it doesn't make sense, but that's what they're doing. Now, one other thing I wanna say about reason, this came up in a conversation just recently, Uh, that I was having with a certain student in a high school class in grade 12 English. And uh, we were talking about critical thinking, and it's good as Christians to learn how to think critically. You need to. But please, don't think that your critical thinking is the final authority for truth. It's not. Revelation of God's word is the final authority for truth. Let that guide your critical thinking. Don't put it the other way around. That's what That's what atheists and uh, cultural Marxists try to do, or anyone that tries to eradicate the world of God, they're left with just their own critical thinking, which is fallible and misguided at times. All right, so here we go. We're going to go into how we respond to this kind of culture. In other words, we're going to ask the question, so what? What do we do with all of this? Well, the, the, the first thing we need to ask ourselves is the manner of our response. How must we respond? Should we run out of here screaming, having signs and sandwich boards and running down the streets and shaking our fists? I guess we need to look at Jesus, first of all. There are many examples in Scripture of messengers that God used in dark points in history. And uh, they had some things in common that we need to look at and remind ourselves of. The first one is uncompromising truth and grace. You say, well, that's quite a tension between the two. How do I do that? John 1.14, the word became flesh. Jesus came, dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. And we have to navigate through some very, very difficult waters at times. We have relatives that are confused. We have people in our world that are not living right, who are self-destructing because of their worldview because of what they believe and we need to approach them with truth but in grace and that kind of tension is going to require a power that we don't have naturally secondly we need unashamed boldness and gentleness a gentle boldness That's what Paul told Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Third, unapologetic, anger and love. Oh, that's a bit surprising. You know, anger is not the opposite of love. When you're angry, it doesn't mean you're not loving. For instance, if you saw one of your children being attacked in the street, how would you feel? You'd say, well, I've got, I got to shove those angry thoughts down. I can't let them control me right now. Now, that's what we call righteous anger. And we would use that anger to fuel us into doing what is right. Why? Because we love our child. So anger is not the opposite of love. Many times we're angry because of what we love, that it's under attack, that it's being damaged, violated in some way. So Paul again tells the Ephesians, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. not giving you a license to go out of here and just be angry with everyone you see. That's not the case. That's not what we're talking about. What Paul is teaching us here is that we are not to grow bitter, We are not to be unforgiving, but we are to use that anger to fuel our love to do what's right. To do what's right. So we can be angry at sin. We can be angry at evil. I can be angry that there are teachers guiding a new generation of Canadians. And teaching them things that is going to destroy their lives and our nation's existence. We can be angry about that. But that anger should fuel us because we love people around us. And it should cause us to want to reach out to people around us. And by the love of Jesus Christ, see others brought to him, brought to a knowledge of the truth. So then what should our substance, the substance of our response be? It must be through what? Well, first of all, this is basically kind of, how do we talk to people? In what way do we communicate with people? Well, first of all, with good questions. Jesus was a master at this. We teach this here when we're doing uh, any kind of leadership courses. Uh, if, if you're going to be leading small groups, that kind of thing, we teach the art of Learning to ask good questions, it should always start here. I always, when I was, I loved, I would go on trips with other guys in business. I don't love going on trips, but when I did, I saw it as a mission opportunity. I just thought, it's not by accident, God's got me going on this trip with this guy, and um, it gives you great opportunities to sit in a restaurant with somebody for an hour or two and have a conversation. So how do you do that? And many of us, I know, I struggled with this for a long time. How do you talk to your coworkers who are not religious? Well, first of all, you have to understand they are religious. They're religious about something. Stop talking about Christianity in a way that makes it look weird or like a weird religion. It's relevant, it applies to everything in our life, right? So, that quite often, I'd start by asking something very non confrontational. Um, And say, maybe, um, uh, do you have any kind of religious background? Or, uh, you know, what was your your childhood like? And just start asking them about their parents. And do you guys go to church anywhere? And I've been amazed at how many people will talk about the one experience they had at church. Or they went to a certain church and there was abuse or something like that. And all of a sudden, now you've touched on a wound. And now you've got something to talk about. Um, and it happened quite often, and how does it start? It starts with good questions, and when people start opening up about their worldviews and about how they see things and they get talking about climate change or uh, other things, it's better to sit back for a moment, kind of relax, take a breath a little bit, okay? It's not up to you to try and correct every view they have. That's not your job. You've got the Holy Spirit with you. It's his job to convict them, but it's our job to witness to them, and so quite often I, I had to learn to take a breath I learned this in high school uh, when I started realizing my my friends who were atheists didn't have much to stand on. So I started asking them questions about their atheism, just ask them how it worked and what they believe. So then if that's the case, then why are we here? What's our purpose for living? And quite often they'd come to a point where they'd say, you know, "I, I really don't know. No. Well, would you like to know a different answer to that question? And it would open doors. Uh, I remember once uh, when I was in uh, in college, uh, one of my fellow students. And of course, the key is people need to know you're a Christian. They need to know. Stop hiding that. All right? Just nail your colors to the mast. Make sure people know what team you're playing on um, and know right away. It, it was. I had great leverage for that when I went back into the automotive industry just recently because... I was coming out of being a former pastor, so it's kind of hard to hide. And everyone, and it's a tight-knit community, the industrial community is very tight-knit, and all the sales guys that would come in and things, and they'd be, at, and here's the new kid on the block again, where'd you come from? Oh, You used to work here, 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 and where, what were you doing for those 10 years? Well, I was a, I was a pastor. And uh, watching their reactions to that, it was, for some, it opened up conversations. I remember for one, one individual, from a very uh, obviously from a religious background but he wasn't very religious every other word he was he was cussing and uh, when i told him that he just kind of stepped back like this it was like he was going to get struck by lightning it was it was humorous but you get to people get to know where you stand immediately and they may start asking you questions right from that um, but you start asking questions. So anyways, this individual that I was in school with, he, he knew what I was. We were having lots of conversations. And he was an adamant atheist. And he put the Windsor Star across the table uh, to me one day when we were on lunch. And it's had on, on the, the headline of the Windsor Star. Scientists have created the little bag, right? And he handed it over to the table. And he said, see, there it is. Evolution is, is proven. I said, John, do you see what the t- title says? It says, scientists have created. And he, <laughs> he kind of looked at it, and we got into this conversation. And at one point, he got so frustrated. He said, I'm no different than the squirrels collecting nuts out in that field. And he pointed out the window. I said, well, John, why are you in here? <laughs> just a question. What are you doing? You're just trying to get them to doubt. Doubt their world view. Why do we have to be the ones always doubting? We're the ones with the truth. That's what I want to teach my kids. At dinnertime, there's no taboo subject in our home. You can ask me anything. I don't care. I'm not going to say, because I'm your dad. You better believe it because the Bible says so. We're going to have a conversation about it. Why is what the Bible says relevant to this, right? We need to train them to ask questions, and start doubting your doubts. Why? And, and as Christians, we need to start talking to unbelievers and asking them what they believe. So your reason that you believe in evolution, is that based on faith? So you have faith in evolution? <laughs> Quite often I'll think back, and yeah, I guess it is kind of faith because I haven't really observed it, Right? What are you doing? You're just asking good questions. Jesus did this all the time. And the, the, the reason this is such an effective tool is because you're forcing the other person to think. You're not spoon-feeding them. You're not just giving them the four points of the gospel, and hopefully you can lead them to Christ in 30 minutes. You're actually making them think, and they might come back to you in a day or two and say, I never thought of that before, but you really made me think. And uh, and it just begins to, I, I have other stories. I, one other guy I was traveling with, he actually was my boss at the time, and he had watched all these atheistic documentaries, and so he was asking me one day, well, how can this be possible? How could, you know, it would have meant that Adam and Eve's kids would have had to have sex with each other, and that's not right, you know, he's going on. I said, well, uh, Corey, can you explain to me how it works in evolution that amoeba become, I don't know, become other forms. At some point, you have to have a male and a female, and at some point, they have to have children, and you got the same problem, don't you? Scratching his head. He says, you know what? I've watched a lot of documentaries from one point of view, and I've never thought about that before. What is it? I haven't even explained anything. I'm not giving him an answer. I'm just asking him a question. And he's beginning to doubt what he believes. He's beginning to think it through. And we can trust the Holy Spirit to do what he does with that. Uh, number two, we have creation as a substance of our response as well. It's on our side. Romans 1 for, for verse 19, For what can be known about God is plain, it's plain. So when we, when we tell people, you know, well, I believe that God created the world and he's the boss. He gets the say. Well, okay, what's your basis for that? Why do you believe God created the world? Well, it's pretty plain. Two things are plain, I think, in our world that we live in. The first is there's evidence of design, I can't look at just even my skin cells without recognizing if I know what's going on that it's pretty incredible. And again, I can't understand how this works with evolution. How do you have a heart without veins and arteries? What, what started first? What formed first, right? They can't explain any of that. Uh, but you, you look at it and you see evidence of design. But the second thing you see is evidence of damage, right? And only the Christian worldview through the lens of scripture, actually explains that and aligns with reality, that there's design and there's damage. Why do we have cancer? Why do we have COVID? Why do we have all these other things? Because, well, it doesn't mean that it wasn't designed. In the same way that if I walked outside tonight and saw my car was a pancake, that I would sit there and say, well, that must prove that my car was never designed or engineered. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't believe that. I believe there's evidence of design, but there's also evidence of damage, right? So creation gives us evidence, and it's plain to us. Biology is plain to us. Astronomy is plain to us. Because God has shown it to them, Romans 1. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So we have creation as well to use as a witness. Next, personal testimony, or sorry, the law. So the law is the God-given witness that everybody has, and, uh, and we're not looking to get to people's uh, intellect. We're not just looking to win an argument about the existence of God. We're actually looking to get to their conscience. Jesus was doing this all the time. Uh, as in Mark 10, when the uh, rich young ruler came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus first said to him, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. You know the commandments and so on. And he goes through them until he pinpoints where this man was guilty and felt guilty. He touched a wound. He did it with the woman at the well in John 4. He did it with uh, many, many people. He was able to use the law to convict them of their sin. We have that on our side. We need to very quickly get people to a point where they recognize, even if it was their own standard, even if it was just all the things they said, you should, you shouldn't, they've broken their own standard. And, we, and it, what does it prove? It proves we're all corrupt. It proves that we can't, we can't make it on our own, that none of us have met the standard. So we have the law. Again, cultural Marxists can 't explain that. well, how are you going to get there? Because everyone around me looks like uh, we 're imperfect we 're selfish we 're greedy, we are jealous. we are all these things and then if, if it's a friend of yours that you, you know isn't so militant and is open to reason and you can Get them around to, do you think you're a good person, right? And use the law to bring them through that and by, again, God's spirit, awaken their conscience. Here's the next one, personal testimony. So what did the woman at the well do in John 4? She left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see a man that told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and we're coming to him. Well, that doesn't take a lot of education to tell what's happened to you, to tell people of God's goodness, to tell people what he's done for you. And actually it's, it, it, it should come up. I mean, people are gonna wonder why you live a certain way, um, why you do what you do, what makes you tick, why it is you're different than others what it is. And you get a chance to say, well, it's not because of me. I'm just letting you know that. Because what I am is I'm a wreck. I remember telling one, one of the guys I was doing a performance review with at work. I said, listen, before we start, I just want you to know that uh, who this is coming from. This is coming from a guy who believes that the God of the universe had to come and die for him. He was such a mess. Okay. So anything I'm going to tell you today, I'm a mess first. And he's sitting there across the desk from me. And you just see kind of relief and like, oh, good to know. Yeah, that makes sense. So now let's get into your performance review and talk about how you can improve and so on. But I was trying to get across to him that, listen, I'm a wreck. And my worldview says that the God of the universe had to come and die for me. I was such a mess, right? If you can get that across to people in your personal testimony, it, it draws them in. They want to know more. They might even think, wow, that's your faith. That's you're just, you're serious about your faith and so on. But when crisis hits, guess who they're coming to? Guess who they're asking to pray for them and so on. And it will open doors. Here's the next one. Stories and illustrations. Jesus was constantly using parables, using illustrations. It might even be stories from scripture that you can use. Say, you know what? I heard about this guy once and just kind of, just kind of put the story not into some kind of King James language, but, but just tell a story. And don't even say it's from the Bible. Um, just tell, us, tell the story and, and get the point across. And they might ask, where'd you get that? You really want to know? Yeah, I do. Eh, the Bible. I read it every day, right? You read the Bible every day? What's the matter with you, right? Stories, illustrations. Get your point across. An explanation. 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which has been given you by prophecy, and so on. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, verse 15, so that all may see your progress. Keep close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Listen, folks. There's no way around this, there's no easy way, there's no easy formula. You have to know. you have to know God's word. You have to know it. I, I would say today, if you believe, if you honestly believe we're in a spiritual battle right now and that you are behind enemy lines and you are surrounded by darkness, I don't see any way around. You should be reading the Bible at least once every year. Really? You want to know how much time it will take it'll take about 20 minutes a day really yeah 20 minutes you got to know your word the word god's word you need to know your bible so that when things come up in conversation with people you can go into the i remember working with a man uh, in our old line of churches, um, he's just a little bit older than me, considered a mentor. And I remember we'd be visiting with people and we'd be sitting down and they'd be talking about their problem, whatever it was, and it'd be an everyday problem. And he would just, at some point in the conversation, be asking questions, doing all that, you know, the, the list. And at some point in the conversation, he would just, he had a big, thick Bible with like four different translations in it, and he'd just say, you know what, that reminds me of a text. And he would just thumb through his Bible. He'd find it, he'd read it, and he'd say, you know what, this verse reminds me, and he'd go into it with them, just, just, and I remember looking at him. going, how do you do that? Well, you do it by knowing the scriptures. You don't have to be a preacher or pastor to do that. Just get familiar with them. Read them. We're in a war. We're soldiers. It's going to take work. It's going to take training. Soldiers don't sit on lawn chairs all day. They get to work, they get busy, they're serious about what they're doing. And if we're serious about what we're doing, that every day when we go to work, we go to school, wherever we're going, we're going into battle. It is gonna change the way that we do things, the way we prepare for our day. Well, next, resources. The resources of our response, the first one is God's word. Second Timothy two, eight, nine, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Uh, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound in chains as a criminal. See, here is Paul writing from prison. He is about to be executed, but the next sentence he says, but the word of God is not bound. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the smallest phrase used in its context in a conversation at work from God's word could be an arrow that turns a life around. Paul says, I'm locked up in chains in this prison, but I'll tell you what will never be put in a prison. Spurgeon talked about this. His job every week, he said when he was preaching, was just to unleash the lion from its cage, right? What did he do? He just preached the Bible. That's all he did. I don't know how many of you are new to harvest, but maybe that I've heard, this is kind of an observation people have when they come to harvest for the first time, it's kind of like, whoa, these guys preach the Bible. Like they take it pretty seriously. Yeah. Do you know why? (laughs) Because that's where the power is. When you give God the microphone, he gets to speak about what he wants to speak about. And we're not apologetic about that. The word of God is our resource. It's not bound. It'll never be bound. Secondly, prayer. If we're going to be warriors, Ephesians 6, Paul says at the end of the armor of God, he says, taking up all this armor, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. In other words, at all times, pray. That's going to require alertness looking around you, seeing the needs, seeing what's going on, seeing the blindness of coworkers and colleagues or family members, husbands, wives, children, and praying, keeping alert. Hopefully awake. we're awake by now. If the pandemic has done anything, can I call it a pandemic? If it's done anything for us, I hope it's awakened us, not made us woke, made us awake. Keep alert, praying at all times. Not just, I'm going to do my prayers in the morning, then I'm going to go to work. And maybe at night when I get home and I'm getting back to bed, then I'm going to pray to him again. No, through the day, walk with him. Pray all the time. Keep alert with all perseverance. The Holy Spirit is the next resource we have. John 16, Jesus made it very clear. I tell you the truth. He was saying to his apostles before he went to die on the cross, It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world. That's his job. It's not ours. That takes the load off. That's why I've, you're able to relax. Maybe you're at the gym and you're talking to someone next to you and you're like, i got to get this guy saved in 30 minutes. This is going to be hard, right? And your pressure's on. I don't know what I'm going to do. But when you remember, no, that's the Holy Spirit's job. My job is just to witness. I don't know where this conversation is going, but it's going to be fun, right? And, uh, and, and going into conversations with that understanding, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. The Holy Spirit is here. Not only does he guide us in what to say, but as we use the word and as we use illustrations, as we ask questions and all the rest, he is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's his job. The church, and by the way, with the church, okay, so Matthew 16, I love this when Jesus said to Peter, on this rock, which I don't believe was Petra or Peter. It was the statement that Peter had just made that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said on this rock, the Christ, the son of the living God who would die and rise again, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Have you ever seen gates advance? You ever seen them moving anywhere? I used to think of this as the devil attacking us and we're like standing against the devil, right? But Jesus is actually describing it a little bit differently because the gates of hell are stationary. It's the church advancing on the gates and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's the church advancing. People around us, hey, I was having this conversation with a guy the other day and he asked me a question. I didn't know what to answer him. I didn't know what to say. Maybe you're in your discipleship group or your women's Bible study and you start asking around and people say, well, I'm gonna pray with you. Maybe maybe we should look into that together and so on. We have the church around us. That's what we have pastoral leadership for and uh, mentors and so on and uh, life groups and things like that. But not only that, I would say the church throughout history so I, I would very, very strongly encourage, if, not, if I could, I would mandate that Christians become readers. I've had debates with other Christians about this kind of thing because they'll say things like, well, yeah, but Christians in ancient times didn't have books to read. And, uh, you know, they didn't even have Bibles back then. They had parchment, things like that, you know. So I don't know if it's necessary and so on. Yeah, but we do. <laughs> That's the point. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm just not a reader. I bet you could become one. I bet you could. If you settled your mind, tuned out a Netflix once in a while, or Facebook or Instagram, and sat down with a book, remember those things, and started reading. You'd be surprised, again, you'd be surprised how much you can cover in 20 minutes a day. You take breaks? You have a lunch hour? Why don't you use it to read? Read biographies, read church history, read other theologians of the past and how they viewed the scriptures and how they have faced conflict and oppression. <sighs> I, this whole thing that's going on right now is nothing new. History is circular. And if we could learn from the people of the past how they face the same kind of slander, the same kind of moral high ground that we're facing from a secular society today, this is nothing new. You think martyrs in the past were killed and everybody was around them applauding the martyrdom of this individual because they were such a great holy saint? No, they were trying to convince themselves that this guy's a villain. He's evil. We need to get rid of him right? It's nothing new. And we need to learn from the church of the past. We have so much support. Um, You want to know where to start? You want to get firm in the gospel? I'll give you a couple books. If you haven't read these, you need to. One of them is Knowing God by J.I. Packer. If you haven't read it, you should. You need to. It's a very well-written book. Somewhat systematic theology, but it's written in a very devotional way an easy read. The other one that uh, left a lasting impact on me, it's a little bit bigger, but it's called uh, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. I don't even, I I hope it's in print today because it's a masterpiece. Uh, I didn't even plan to say this, but just a beautiful explanation of the gospel in its fullness and all that Jesus did for us at the cross. And I came out of that book just worshiping, just like... (laughs) deeper in my understanding just he did this for me like it's it's beyond our imagination you walk out in the world having that kind of passion and zeal for what Christ has done for you you're going to have a hard time holding that in but those are a couple classics and there's so many more I'd have a list for you but I get teased all the time about bringing up books but I'm going to bring up books because uh, they are essential to the Christian faith they just are uh strategy here we go strategy of our response we are getting closer to the end first of all our lifestyle ephesians 4 verse 1 i therefore a prisoner for the lord why are you a prisoner for the lord because i'm walking in a manner worthy of the gospel and i'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So let your lifestyle reflect the gospel. Secondly, conversation. 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. The context of this is suffering. People are going to look at your suffering and go, why are you suffering that way? Why is it you can go through that battle with cancer with such confidence? It's weird. What is it? Be prepared to make a defense. That word defense is the word we get "apologist" from. Uh, Apologia. Apologetics, right? That's where it comes from, to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Are you ready with an answer? So it's good to know where people are coming from. It's good to know if if we're promoting power circles and things like that, where it's coming from, what's behind it, what the cultural gospels, false gospels are, and how to make a defense against it. The next one are ethics. What we believe is right and wrong. Keep your conduct, 1 Peter 2, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Honesty, integrity, sobriety. Not perfection. There's authenticity to it, but there's an authentic pursuit of holiness. It's very important. Next, our influence. Influence. Matthew 5, Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. What do these things do? They influence things around them. That's what they do. They have a preservative effect or they have an enlightening effect. Right? Salt of the earth, light of the world. Where you work, where you learn, where you teach you will have an influence for good or for bad. Believe me, we all do. We don't live to ourselves. We don't live in a bubble. So why wouldn't we be resolved to maximize our lives for the glory of God? And that means everything we do at work be intentional about how we're influencing the people around us. To be a culture changer right where you're at. You don't have to run out in the street with a big sign right where you're at, where God's called you right in your home. Are you an influence at home? Guys, you leading your homes well? Are you influencing? And the last one, passion. Deuteronomy 6 tells us what ought to fuel us. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Do people see us, look at us and say, that's a person who means what they say. That's a person living with passion. That's a person willing to die for what they believe. Well, one, uh, I think that's the end of the, the yeah, that's the end of the slides. Um, but one last final word to say tonight, just in case you're overwhelmed which I'm sure you are. It's a lot of content. That's why I gave you a handout, because I want you to take it home and uh, through the week, at least consider these things. Maybe go through these texts, go through these scriptures, go through what your worldview is and how it has impacted you. Or how are you living your life? Are you living your life according to your worldview? Well, you are. Maybe your worldview is not what you think it is. Maybe we need to review that. But we are called to a specific mission. That's the whole point as we go through this series. This is not just for the sake of giving you information every night so that you can walk away and say, well, that's nice to know. I'm not really sure what it means, but it's nice to know. At least I know now what kids are being taught in high school, right? No, it's it's not about that. We're called at a specific time. First of all, here's the first point. We're not here by accident. We're not here by accident. This is our time in history. This is not an accident. God is the sovereign author of all history. He has placed us in this world at this time with divine intention. He knows what he's doing. So are you afraid for your children? So am I, but I, I, I see kids in scripture and in, in history, I should say in history, not just in scripture. They were in history, real kids who grew up in some of the darkest, most secular ex- exposures, cultures, and they live to glorify God out of it. Like some of them, their parents wished they could have had more control. Didn't quite work out that way. Wasn't Moses' mother Jochebed, is that right, Jochebed? Uh, I'm sure she wished she could have raised her son, or let's say Hannah, who probably wished she could have raised her son and not given him over to a corrupt religious system. Right? I'm sure there, there were moms and parents who wished they could have done something else or lived in another point of history. You afraid for your children? Sure. What kind of world will be left for them? Sure. But is God able to keep them, to save them, to transform their lives, to make them bold for the gospel? Of course they are. So we need to get over our fear and become intentional about training the next generation of believers to be warriors for Christ. This is not an accident that we're here now. We can't just wish for the good old days. They weren't that good. They're just good in our imagination. God sovereignly put us here for this time. Esther 4, very clearly, Mordecai says, who knows, which is, uh, again, this particular book's genre's way of saying God knows, but God is mysteriously left out of the narrative. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? I mean, Daniel had his name changed to a Babylonian God. It doesn't get much more oppressive than that. Yeah, I'm not going to eat your meat. I'm not going to bow to your statue. But I will help you with your dreams. I'll pray for you. I'll help you with your kingdom. But I'm going to trust the God of the universe. You've probably prayed for yourselves. Sure, so am I what kind of world we're living in now? Yep. But we're called to this time for a specific mission. Secondly, we're not professionals. We weren't intended to be. In Acts 4, the leaders saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. And they were astonished. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. We're not professionals. The key is to be with Jesus, to learn from him, to be his disciple. I mean, if you agree that we're placed here for this moment in history, what possible significance could your life make? Well, you're not the first non-professional God has called to his team. He doesn't call all-stars. You're not on the B team. You are on God's, in God's army, and uh, we're not professionals, we are witnesses, Right? And that's the last one. We're called to be witnesses. You don't need a degree in apologetics. Yes, we're going to try and equip ourselves to be more effective. I'll tell you, one of the most effective things for me has been just doing it. Just tripping up, failing, walking home or going home with regret. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? That was dumb. You know, losing sleep. But learning from it and going in the next day and and just learning from trial by fire. We're called to be witnesses. If you were called into the courtroom to recount your knowledge of of an event that you saw or experienced, you wouldn't need to go to school for years to figure that out, would you? You can tell what you've experienced. It's that easy. We're not here by accident. So, for the next remaining weeks, I think next week we're going to be looking at critical race theory, but we're going each week we're going to be looking at it from some kind of gospel perspective so next week we're going to be looking at truth because critical race theory isn't just about race it is an attack on truth um, and and we're going to be taking it from that angle, kind of looking at what is truth, what does truth do, what should we do with the truth and what critical race theory is and what it has done with the truth, and we're living it now, it's part of our culture, and we need to know how to face it.